Hare Jiradha Madhava Kunjavi Hari Jiradha Madhava Kunjavi Jiradha Madhava Kunjavi Hari Radha Madhava Kupi Janabalava Girivaradhari Sijanabalava Kupi Janabalava Girivaradhari Sijanabalava Girivaradhari Shudhanandana Rajajanaranjana Shudhanandana Rajajanaranjana Yamuna Chiravana Chari Amuna Tiravana Yamuna Tiravana Chari Amuna Tiravana Radha Madhava Kunjavi Hari Kunjabiya Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabihari Kupijana Balava Kiribaradhari Kopijana Balava Girivaradha Kopijana Balava Girivaradha Kopijana Balava Girivaradha Jushodhanana Rajajanaranjana Jishodhanandana Rajajanaranjana Rajajanaranjana Thira Vanachari Jamuna Thira Banacha Jamuna Tira Banachari 
Prabhupada said the Bhagavatam is sweet wherever you pick it, wherever you open it. Hmm. We made an assumption. Well, maybe it, is this the right verse? Because this was on the board at, like, at Mangalarti time, which means it could have been yesterday's. Oh, they change it after class. Acha. So it's the right one. Okay. Anyone have a dime or a screwdriver? I can fix the mic stand. For no extra cost. Actually, I can't fix it. Oh, my God. It's a strange mic stand. It's unfixable. Okay, so we're reading from the first canto, third chapter, which is entitled, I believe, Source of Incarnation, John. So this is text 10. Panchamaha Kapila Nama Sideshaha Kala Viplutam. Pravacha Shuraye. Shankyam. Tatva. Grama. Vinirnayam. Panchama Kapila Nama. 
Videsha Kalavi Plutam Provacha Shurae Shankya Tatva Grama Vinirmayam Panchama Kapilo Nama Sudesha Kalavi Plutam Provacha Shuraye Shankyam Tattva Grama Vinirnayam Panchama Kapilo Nama Sudesha Kalavi Plutam Shakalavi Pravachashuraye Sankyam Tattva Grama Vinirnayam Panchamakapila Mama Provacha Shurae Sankyam Yamayam Anchamakapilo Nama Siddhisha Kalavi Plutam Anyone else want to chant? Okay, word meanings. Panchamaha. The fifth one. Kapilaha, Kapila, Nama, of the name, Sudeshaha, the foremost amongst the perfect, Kala, time, Viplutam, lost, Provacha, said, Asuraye, unto the Brahmana named Asuri, Sankyam, metaphysics, Tattvagrama, the sum total of the creative elements, Vinirnayam, exposition, Translation, 
The fifth incarnation, named Lord Kapila, is foremost among perfected beings. He gave an exposition of the creative elements and metaphysics to Asuri Brahmana, for in course of time this knowledge had been lost. Purport. The sum total of the creative elements is 24 in all. Each and every one of them is explicitly explained in the system of Sankhya philosophy. Sankhya philosophy is generally called metaphysics by the European scholars. The etymological meaning of Sankhya is that which explains very lucidly by analysis of the material elements. This was done for the first time by Lord Kapila, who is said herein to be the fifth, to be the fifth in the line of incarnations. So the question would uh, come up, how is it metaphysics if he's explaining the material elements? Because metaphysics means it's above physics. And he's explaining the material elements, but he's also explaining the soul. And vidyam avidyam chayas, knowledge and ignorance, side by side. So you, to understand something completely, sometimes you have to understand what it isn't. That gives you a more complete understanding. If I try to explain something to you that you've never experienced, and you say, well, is it like a pear? No. Is it like an apple? No. Is it like an orange? Kind of. So, well, you need you know it's not like an, an apple or orange. It makes it helps you understand. It's more like an orange, citrus. So, here are the 24 material elements, and then here's the soul, which is different. Metaphysical, above the physical. And Prabhupada has said some very, I guess we could use the word heavy, some very heavy things about modern society, which is basically everyone's in ignorance, like everyone. There may be a few people that aren't. They happen to read his books. But basically everyone's in ignorance. Even the ones who don't seem to be in ignorance are in ignorance. So what does Prabhupada mean by this? Well, they don't know. They know matter, but that's all they know. When Prabhupada came out with the Krishna book, this was 1970, and then I realized at that time, no one in America has any idea who God is. Because without the Krishna book, how would they know? So they don't, most people don't understand the soul or believe in it. What to speak of knowing God? So therefore, Prabhupada says everyone is in ignorance. And what, what is the result of ignorance? What do you do when you're in ignorance? You work hard to make money, and you look for the opposite sex. And um, people are doing this till they die even though they're old and you know, should be time for self-realization. Still, they're trying to make themselves young and attractive, so they don't give up. That's another definition of ignorance. Um, how do people prepare for death? They go to retirement homes, they play golf, tennis, and bridge. That's how they prepare for death. So when Prabhupada says, Ignorance is everywhere, and sometimes he said, there's even no passion, there's no sattva, it's only ignorance. 
What does he mean? They understand the material elements, but they don't understand the spiritual. So, this is, what Kapila is explaining is what we call gyan. And gyan is a process of understanding what isn't, so you don't go after it. And it's a process of detaching by understanding what isn't and by understanding where what isn't will take you. It will take you into suffering. And it's not a complete process because understanding that something will cause you suffering doesn't, uh, doesn't always prevent you from doing it because we're not that smart. So it's, it's used as a means of detachment but as we all know, Prabhupada has quoted this verse, Arua Krachena, Param Param Tata. You go up, but what goes up must come down because there's no Krishna. So, Gyan is important because it helps us detach, but it's more of an initial attachment. It helps you, it's like you're stuck to something. And it helps you get unstuck. But now what do you do that you're unstuck? And if you had bhakti to start with, it would un, it would get you unstuck anyway. So sometimes devotees think that reading our books is gyan. They go, why do we have to spend so much time reading so much gyan? There is gyan in it, but just enough to get your hands unstuck and get you on the path of bhakti, but not a whole lot, because it's not really necessary. And and how can we say that? Well, look at look at Krishna Lila. What were all those what were all those smart people doing? The smart people were loving Krishna. And 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 the funny thing is about all the smart people who love Krishna, they came back in Chaitanya Lila as great scholars. But in Krishna Lila, they didn't need to be great scholars, even though they were. So they're advertised as simple village girls who actually knew everything about Krishna, right? Otherwise, how could they come as Goswamis in Chaitanya Lila if they weren't if they weren't great scholars? So they were great scholars, but they didn't they loved Krishna, so why did they have to philosophize? And they came at Chaitanya Lila for a specific pur- purpose to liberate Mayavads and impersonalists and others um, by their knowledge and establish and also establish the validity of bhakti. But during Krishna Lila, that wasn't really necessary. So, even though they were great scholars, it was like it never came out, and they were advertised as simple village girls, which in fact they were, but they weren't. They were both but they didn't need it. Isn't that interesting? And then the Brahmins said, you know, we think we're so smart, but our wives are smarter, and it's a fact. Because cowboy boys came begging for Krishna Balaram, so they, they gave. So who was smarter? They're the big Brahmin men or the wives? The simple, so-called simple wives. Yeah, so they they actually understood. So... How important is knowledge? It's important, but it's not that important. Right? So Prabhupada has given us a lot of knowledge. And Prabhupada's trying to convince us that we're not going to be happy here. So that knowledge is 
sprinkled all over his books. You'll find it everywhere, right? Have you understood that yet? Well, Prabhupada didn't think we understood it because he keeps saying it from Bhagavad Gita through the, you know, 10th canto. I, I, once, I think I gave a class on the 10th canto once, and it was like, it was like a purport from Bhagavad Gita about, what was it? you're not the body. <laughs> so, um, it's, in, it's interesting. So, knowledge is important, but it's not that important. And so, it's also interesting when you look at these incarnations because they're coming in a particular context. So what they're talking about is important in that context according to the audience they're speaking to and the time, place, and circumstance. But what if Kapila came today? Like, you know, what would happen? How much the general populace would, would not be interested or find it relevant. What do they find relevant? Kirtan, Prasadam. So Mahaprabhu comes. Kirtan Prasadam. So this is a different time, a different level of intelligence, a different yuga, a different interest. And um, so I think that's important to recognize. And for us, the, the message we get from Kapila's explanations is we're not the body and we can't be happy in the material world, basically. And one time... One time, Prabhupada was speaking to Hansadutta, and he asked Hansadutta, why do we read the books? And Hansadutta said, to learn the philosophy, and Prabhupada said, no, to chant Hare Krishna. That's why we read the books. And Prabhupada said, and once you get that, you don't need the books. That just put the V-I-G and M-I-G out of business, right? Of course, um, what Prabhupada meant is when you get the pure holy name, you won't need the books because what's the point of the books? Give the pure holy name when you have love of Krishna. You've reached the sum and bonum, right? Sambandha, abhideya, you reach the prayojana. So now what do you do? You love Krishna. So the gopis set that example because they didn't sit around and philosophize. They didn't need to. They sit around, they sat around and cried. But the Goswamis sat around and philosophized because it was needed within that context. Because the world at that point was full of atheists and non-believers. And, they, and we see how uh, so many of them were convinced by the philosophy. And also, the basics of the philosophy would be needed for preaching in, in this world, in this context. But still... Even though they were great scholars, and, they, and like Jiva Goswami is the greatest scholar and wrote these amazing philosophical works, we see today in 2019, October, most people are not interested in philosophy. That's why Buddhism is so popular. People are interested in psychology, isn't it? The mind, how to deal with the mind and emotion, and how to just deal with the world and it becomes extremely popular. And if you get too philosophical, your lecture becomes the cure for insomnia. Everyone goes to sleep. Isn't it? Um, I was just with my sister, and we met some guy. We were at a farmer's market. We met a guy. 
And we ended up talking. And ended up talking about Ramdas, Baba Ramdas, who, who was a associate of Timothy Leary in the hippie movement of LSD. And then he went to India and took shelter of Neem Karoli Baba, and then got into spiritual life. And the, the guy said, "There's a movie about Bob, about Ramdas, and it's only five dollars." I said to my sister, "Let's go see. I want to see what he says." So we went to the movie. Practically all psychology. You know, he was speaking Vedas, but but very little philosophy and mostly psychology and 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 how to. I mean, it was some philosophy, but not much. And people were just loving what he was saying. But if you get too philosophical, most people. I mean, in my generation, yes, we were philosophical, but today, not so much. Not so. Um, it's still, we have to establish Siddhanta, Nirvisesha Shunyavadi. Prabhupada came to defeat Mayavad and impersonal and Sunyavad. Most people today don't even know they're Mayavad or Sunyavad. They don't know what they are. They just have some idea that they spelled out. Isn't it? You, you, so, <laughs> those days the Mayavads knew they were Mayavads. They took sannyas in a certain sampradaya. They knew what they believed. And they had tons of shastra to back it up. So so the Goswamis and Mahaprabhu, they had to defeat them. They had to establish the proper bhakti siddhanta. And we have to know that, definitely, obviously, as Prabhupada has given us that. But in general, people are not so interested in that. Isn't it? Things are changing, yeah. So I heard a lecture the other day, and Prabhupada said, you know, he was dealing with this point that people are kind of dull. You've noticed that? Brains don't really work, and they're not firing on all cylinders. They're not really kind of dumbed down. And so Prabhupada was addressing that. And so a devotee said, you know, Prabhupada, these people, they, they can't understand what we're saying. They're not interested in what we're saying. Prabhupada said, Kirtan and Prasadam, the whole world will be saved. He's, no, he said he said that, and he said, Kirtan and Prasadam is the only hope. So, um, that's interesting. Even though Prabhupada was preaching so much, even he recognized that. And then, uh, he wrote to Gunagrai Maharaj, I believe it was Gunagrai Maharaj or Bhaktadas, when we were in San Diego, it was Gunagrai Maharaj. We, San Diego is New Govardhan, so we would have Govardhan festivals. And Prabhupada said, do not speak for more than 10 minutes. Like they would give a lecture on stage. He said, just have kirtan. Kirtan of Rasadam, do not speak for more than 10 minutes. And even at Rathi, the Rathiatras I attended with Prabhupada, he didn't speak much. 10 minutes, maybe. It was mostly kirtan. In those days, festival meant do a parade, go on a stage and do kirtan and give out prasadam. There was, you know, maybe have a skit. That was it. And, and talking, rarely, if at all, said anything. So, these incarnations are coming and they're doing different things within the context that is necessary for the people 
at that time and place. And I think that's one of the main things we learn. And we also see that context is changing. Context of 1968, we're reading this morning, or was that 67? San Francisco, I was there. So I know the context. That context was much different. You show you show some hippie, Lord Jagannath, and they say, who's that? And you say, that's God. They say, oh, cool. Immediately, just like anything's believable. And philosophy, everybody was into philosophy. And, and India was... And, and the stranger it was, the better it was. So now, you know, now there's a concern that, you know, devotees look weird and people are alienated. That's what attracted people. The weirder you were, the more cool you were. And the more, the more you attracted that generation. So it was a different context. And that's why that same context didn't work so well later. And people started thinking we're weird. In those days, they thought we were cool. The weirdest was the coolest. So we had, we had, without any endeavor, we were resonating 108% with that younger generation. We didn't have to do anything. It was just, we just had to be devotees. Fanatical, the more fanatical, the better. The more far out, the better. And that would attract people because that was a different context. That context doesn't work now. You see that the context now is different. That context was drop out. Everyone was dropping out. And so all the devotees had dropped out. So they had already, they're already doing what was the, was the culture. And in my generation, we used to think, we used to say, that if you hadn't dropped out of university, there's something wrong with you. You hadn't caught on yet. We always said the most intelligent people were the ones who dropped out. So it was a totally different culture. That was respected that you dropped out. Now, now you go to India. If you want to preach in India, if someone gives you a card, they have like three or four titles under their card. You have no idea what those titles are. But it's all about branding yourself as an educated person who's got a high position. And so the idea of dropping out, it doesn't, it's not attractive. And credentials. I, I, I'm trying to preach in corporations. They're like, well, what has he done? What has he written? Where's his degrees? Where is he taught? No, he's a university dropout. That's his qualification. Yeah, in 1968, bring him in. He's the only guy who's smart enough to figure it out. So, um, context is important. And um, I don't know if you're aware of this or if you've noticed this, but when Prabhupada first came to America, the first lectures he was giving were very, (laughs) very esoteric, very high. And this was to brand new people. And he toned it down later on when he realized who he was talking to. Because you have to understand, this is Prabhupada's preaching to a class of people he's never grown up with, he doesn't understand yet. And he started to see that they couldn't comprehend. But at least my experience in India, outside of Iskand, go to Gaudiya the, the Kata level is a little bit higher, generally, than ours. They're very, a little more, they're much, they tend to be more learned 
That's what I've seen. Not a criticism, maybe an encouragement that we become more learned. They, they tend to be a little more learned and deeper and a little higher. And Prabhupada was speaking that, and talking about a lot of very high things. But later, later on it came down to you're not the body, like every third lecture or every lecture. You're part and parcel of Krishna, you're suffering. And when I first came to the temple, that's all the devotees preached. You're not the body, you're part and parcel of Krishna. Krishna's God, everything for Krishna, and you're suffering. And that's all they knew, because that's what Prabhupada was preaching. That's what they heard. I swear, that's all they said. They just said it in different ways. Every lecture was those five things, said in different ways. That's all they knew. That's all they were hearing. That's what Prabhupada was telling us. He he. He had to bring it down to our level because it was too high in the beginning. And so you might have some fun and listen to those lectures because you'll see some there's some pretty high things in those lectures. And that level of kata was just normal for Prabhupada. That's what he was used to hearing and that's what he was used to preaching in Gaudiya Math before he came. That was standard. So... I I was always amazed at Prabhupada's ability to adapt, but that amazement solidified when I started going to other countries and realizing, it, it, not realizing, but experiencing how difficult it is to preach in other countries when you first get there because you don't understand people. And you think you understand them. Well, when you're in China, you know you don't understand them. That's a completely different culture. But like if you go to, you know, Europe or Eastern Europe or Africa or South Africa. I went to South Africa. It was European people. And I thought I understood them. It was a different culture. You can't deal with them like ordinary people. And then I, I went to give a lecture and there were a bunch of Indians. They asked me to give the Rathiatra lecture and I mentioned Mahatma Gandhi. And, and I didn't say anything bad about him. I just said that he was told to give up politics by Prabhupada. And people warned him he would. it wasn't safe for him to be in politics. And Prabhupada mentioned that. So I mentioned that. But all the devotees afterwards came up and said to me, said, we thought you were going to say Mahatma Gandhi was a fool or something like that. And he said, if you would have said that, we would have lost the whole congregation of Indians. They would have all left us. You know, there were like 50,000 people there or something. And he said, they would have all left us. So just the point, you come in new in a country, you need to know. Fortunately, I didn't say that. Krishna prevented me from saying that. It's not my nature to speak that way. Um, What to speak of going to a culture like China, where it's completely different. And I don't know in our time how long it took you to figure out Chinese people. I'm still working on it. I started going there three years ago. I'm still trying to figure them out. It's not easy. They don't. They don't. It's a different culture, different people. So, um, you figured them out. You're still working on it. Can American figure them out? It's difficult. Our cultures are so different. I mean, we're joking here, but we're serious also. It is difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like you know. You'll. You'll bang your toe and they'll all laugh, isn't it? They're like, like, why is that funny? Ow, ow, and everyone laughs. I don't know why. (laughs) I haven't understood it. No one's told me. So, um, 
So when I went to South Africa, I found it... I found it took me about a year to actually understand people. And I appreciated so much at that point, or much more than ever, how Prabhupada was able to adapt to that environment in New York with, with, with hippies. And that was quite an accomplishment, if you think about it. Coming from Vrindavan and the upbringing, the culture Prabhupada came from, and being able to understand these people and say the right thing, as Prabhupada did. That's amazing. That still, to this day, I can't figure it out, like how Prabhupada could do that, unless Krishna was telling him. Because even you, if you had to go preach in those days, you would have a hard time understanding them. Because everything was far out. What does that mean? It means you took too many drugs and you can't express yourself. And And not only that, One of Prabhupada's godbrothers was asked, why didn't you go to the West? He actually said that order to go to the West was for everyone. It wasn't just for Prabhupada. It was for everybody. But Prabhupada took it up. And he said, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta asked him to go. And he said, I cannot associate with those people. It's not possible for me. I could not be with those people. You know, He's from a Brahmin family. And Bhakti Siddhanta asked him to go. And he said, I can't. I can't deal with those people. So Prabhupada, you know, aside from Prabhupada's adaptation, he lived and associated with these people, which were unseen by him. He'd never seen anybody in India like that. Maybe some yogis in the Himalayas smoking ganja all day with dreadlocks. But as far as, you know, Americans doing that and, and that closely associating. And did he ever complain? Never. There was... Um, there's a story in which a devotee became very frustrated and she went to Prabhupada and said, I quit. And Prabhupada said, you have no right to quit. If anyone has a right to quit, it's me. You have no right. He said, you do not know what I've gone through to start this movement, the austerity. You know, just having to deal with us, that's enough. I mean, we have problems dealing with one another. And we're, you know, Americans. What to speak of Prabhupada, this pure Vaishnava. And he just tolerated it and was so compassionate and so um, so giving. I I wrote I bothered Prabhupada three times to take I think it was three times I bothered him to take sannyas. I was just like I was relentless, you know. And he's dealing with you know, all of us, you know, these young kids just bothering him with stupid things. And he would patiently answer all of us. And he would look at us like, you know, I'm sure he's thinking, you're sincere, but your brain doesn't work. You know, So, okay, your brain doesn't work. Maybe I can, you know, fix it, oil it and tune it up. So he would give us instructions. Because we were sincere, he saw that. But he tolerated everything else. And there was a lot of everything else. And... and um, Many, many, many times, Prabhupada said, I cannot translate my books because there's so much infighting amongst yourselves. That it just gives me a headache and I can't sit peacefully because I'm so disturbed. So, you know, you think, well, you know, the pure devotee, he's transcendental and nothing bothers him. And Prabhupada said, I am so disturbed I can't translate. So Prabhupada was 
having to tolerate us. You know, smashing against one another like immature little kids who can't get along. He had to tolerate that. Still tolerating us. So, um, you know, so oftentimes I tell devotees, you know, one of the greatest services you can do is cooperate because otherwise you just give a headache to Prabhupada. So, um, I'll end with one story I've told many times, but I don't think you've all heard it, and we can have discussion on this. There was a devotee named Devarshi, and Devarshi joined in San Francisco, must have been 1968 or 69. And San Francisco was basically the headquarters of the hippies. And if you lived in Haight-Ashbury in those days you were probably taking a lot of drugs. It was just what everybody did. So Devarshi had taken a lot of LSD, and Devarshi was so spaced out, it took him all day to chant his rounds because he had taken so many drugs, he couldn't focus. You know, AD, what, ADHD is what that was. Is that, he was ADHD on steroids 100 times over. Took him... Eight to ten hours to finish his rounds. You can imagine how spaced out you would have to be. That's, you know, I calculated it once. It was like one mantra. You can calculate it. It was like one mantra every 30 seconds or something. You know, just like, or 20 seconds. Hare Krishna, Hare. And stop and start and stop. Completely destroyed. But he was a brahmachari living in the temple. And, you know, he couldn't do it any faster. And they wrote to Prabhupada, and Prabhupada said, let him stay in the temple and just let him chant all day if that's what it takes. So Prabhupada was very, was very willing to give people a chance. He, was, he, he sacrificed himself. And when he would give initiation, first initiation, he said, he said, okay, first initiation, give them a chance. Second initiation, strict, first initiation. So Prabhupada was willing to take all this karma. And then... One yogi or doctor or someone told Prabhupada when he was sick, he said, you're sick because you're absorbing the sins of all the people coming to Vrindavan who see your deity on the altar. And Prabhupada said, yes, I know. And he's saying, you know, you should take that off the altar. Prabhupada said, no. So he was, Prabhupada was doing what was necessary to do to give mercy and willing to give mercy to anyone. There was a devotee who was a thief. And they knew he was a thief and they made him promise he would steal. And he stole. And Prabhupada said, okay, forgiven. Next time we call the police. Prabhupada was willing to forgive him. And he stole again. And then Prabhupada called the police. But still, dealing with these, these characters, he was willing to deal with them. So... Um, and willing to adjust the preaching as necessary. If you read some of Prabhupada's letters, in his letters you'll find he's dealing with a lot of practical situations. And a lot of those letters are kind of like the letters you would get from your mother or father or grandmother or grandfather. It's just it's not really that spiritual per se, it's just practical like wisdom for young people who aren't experienced in the world, who haven't grown up yet. That's basically what it is. 
um, several letters, letters in particular. Um, if you read them, you'll you'll get a, you get a glimpse of where the devotees are at. Completely irresponsible, uh, no common sense whatsoever. Um, falsely renounced, no real self-assessment of where they're at, and Prabhupada having to bring them down without chastising them, just explaining, no, you shouldn't do this, you should be responsible, this isn't, you know, like that. Not even chastising. He, Prabhupada hardly ever chastised. Outside of some, his leaders, he hardly ever chastised devotees. Did you know that? You know, and that, when Prabhupada said... The guru is supposed to chastise, and it's a fault if he doesn't chastise. And he hardly ever chastised anybody. I mean, you can say his chastisement was done in his classes, philosophically, but we did so many wrong things, and he patiently helped us. So, I think that's a wonderful example of adjustment. And people say, well, if Prabhupada were here today, would he adjust, or would he do things the way he did? He was constantly adjusting. Why even ask the question? Prabhupada was constantly... And you know, your own Guru Maharaj, Tamal Krishna Maharaj, sometimes said, Prabhupada, I don't think we should do it this way. And they would discuss it, and Prabhupada would say, okay, do it this way. Prabhupada was always willing to adapt and change, right? Whether you want to admit it or not, we know that he did that, Yes. <laughs> Sometimes, because he was concerned about the preaching, concerned about Prabhupada's position and so forth, he said, Prabhupada, I don't think we should do this. And I had asked Jai Dwaita Swami, I had read something in the original edition of Bhagavatam, and I said, it's not there in the newer versions. I said, why? He said, because I think it was Hayagriva went to Prabhupada and said, I don't think we should put this in the books. It will not be understood properly or it could have... Uh, detrimental effects, people will misunderstand. Prabhupada said, then take it out. So, maybe some devotees don't know this, but Prabhupada was not like a, a rigid rock. I was willing to adapt. And, if, and then when he started Gurukul, he said, he said in his own words, this is an experiment. It's not an experiment traditionally, but it's an experiment in America. He said, the Gurukul, his own words, the Gurukul experiment. So why an experiment? It's already been experimented for forever, right? It's a traditional system. It's an experiment in the West. Will it work? How will it work? The experiment is still going on, or it's been going on. And, you know, we failed in some ways, and we learned in other ways, but it's definitely an experiment. And so Prabhupada wasn't attached to it being one specific way or not, it was just attached to what works best. So he was, he was like that. He was adjusting. So, if all the incarnations adjusted and preached according to the context, I think that says a lot, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. So why don't we end here? You have some comments or questions, and have a little discussion. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I remember um, when Sriyamara 
Yes. But he came for a GBC, thank you. He came for a GBC meeting and, um, you know, so there was some discussion and, uh, I think he had a book, like the seven habits of, so I asked him about it and he told me, you know what I've understood by all of this? And he said, it's just a distraction. So, you know, he was trying to encourage me, like, just, like, really get into Prophet's teachings. Uh-huh. Don't take uh-huh. these uh, seven, whatever it was. Uh, Prophet tech- gave everything. Yeah. So that's kind of my question, you know. My question is that when we talk about adjusting and, um, you know, time, place, and circumstance and so forth, you know, how do you stay um, true, yeah. like, to the principles and adjust the details. I mean, there's that famous saying, Prabhupada said it takes intelligence, but yes. I guess I want to go a little bit deeper into this and, you know, ask you. Yeah. Well, I think it's easy to answer because my experience is no matter what the situation you're preaching in, you have to be an example of what you're preaching. And so the fundamentals are always the same of what we're preaching. How it's administered is going to be different. So... At least personally, that's where I start, you know. Be an example, you know. You're chanting your rounds, you're up in the morning, you're studying Prabhupada's books, you're not creating some new philosophy, you know, and so forth. But at the same time, you want to be able to reach people. And so what I find is is a good combination, that you're... You are an example, but you may adapt to teaching them, but you can always go... like, Like when I preach in that outer world, especially when it's a little far out. I always tell them what I do. I don't tell them you have to do this. I tell them, this is what I do, and this is how it works for me. So, um, there's always that stability, you know, that, that I, I have certain principles. And, you know, we could, I can say, I meditate every morning for two hours, and I could say, well, you should meditate, and if you want to learn, I can show you we started a project to get people to chant japa and then we're interfacing with all these these yoga groups and then we realized that they're not going to interface if we say you only chant the maha mantra right so you know we call it the mantra project you know chant mantra but we realized most people don't have a mantra so we can say chant whatever mantra you want if you don't have one chant this mantra and that's going to be 95% of the people so you know, when you're looking at it and, and, and adjusting, there's not actually that much adjustment you're really making when it comes down to it. But it's like, okay, I'll give you another example. I had a god brother, and he, he used to go out, he had a little cart that folded up, he could take it on a bus and unfold it, it was like a book table. And he would stand by the book table and he had a sign that said, ask me about Krishna. And he had a button that said, ask me about Krishna. And he wouldn't stop people. He would just wait for them to come. You know, it's a good psychology. And then he would meet these people and he would invite them to his house and he lived across the street from the temple. And he wouldn't bring them to the temple until he felt they were ready. And the temple was across the street. So, you know, was he watering it down? No. He was just adapting to what he felt would be best for them. And and one of my godbrothers said, Prabhupada said, preaching means what to say and what not to say. 
you know, what not to say and, and when to say what you didn't say earlier when you have to say it. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it's getting, you know, bringing me a little bit deeper to it. Like, I'll give you an example. Just like, see, you're sitting on this Indian Vyasa sun right now. Yes. Right? And we're sitting on the floor. Now, if we brought a group of new people in here, to me, it's kind of like a cultural barrier. Yeah. Right? Could you be. Expect yeah. them to sit on the floor, you know, say yeah. somebody your age, you know, and you sit on this Vyasa sun. So, you know, it, 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 it seems like the details have to do with accommodating yes. more than, um, you know, the, the actual message that you're not the body of Christians, yeah. the personality of Godhead. Yes. Well. Yes. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, I don't think the answer is chairs, no chairs, or, you know, spice, no spice. I think the answer is what's the best way to bring people to Krishna consciousness and do that. And you know the story when Prabhupada wanted to send your Guru Maharaj back to India and he said, I'm preaching, and Prabhupada said, you know, what is this preaching? He said, oh, I'll show you. And he brought in all these shaved up brahmacharis and Prabhupada said, ah, this is preaching, <laughs> stay here. So you know that if you can show results, Prabhupada will say, ah. You know, and there, you never compromised your preaching, you didn't compromise your own practice. And here all these people are coming and they're now you've got, you know, 200 people chanting Jop every day. And you did it because you rented a community hall and you, you wore a suit jacket or whatever. Would Prabhupada say, oh, that's bogus. You, you should have done it in a dhoti. And you say, but you say, Prabhupada, they wouldn't have come if I were in a dhoti. Then he, he, of course, he would have said, oh, oh, then this is good. I mean, he wouldn't have said it was bogus, but if that discussion came up, obviously, he would be happy. So for me, it was always, am I compromising my principles? I can't compromise my principles. I can't compromise the philosophy, but I have to do it in a way that I can get results. And if I can show those results to Prabhupada, and I haven't compromised anything, I know he's going to smile and say, yes, that was smart, that was good. I mean, I'm convinced of that, just based on knowing how happy Prabhupada was. Like the whole controversy... You know, I, I was there during the wear Western dress or not on Sankirtan. In like 1972 it came up. And they're going back and forth. Oh, their they're devotees are becoming like hippies. They're wearing wigs and long hair and, and they're wearing Western dress. And you know what was the final argument that Prabhupada said, okay, wear Western dress? The GBC said, Prabhupada, we don't mind to wear dhotis and saris, but it will cut book distribution 50%. Prabhupada said, then wear Western dress. That was it. The argument was finished at that sentence. So I think it says a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. There's that quote from Srila Prabhupada that if, um, if I didn't request my, you know, the, the, the devotees to follow the regulative principles, I could have millions yes. of followers. Yes. yes. 
So you know that kind of like counters okay. what you're saying. No, 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 no. I have the I have the answer to counter that <laughs> because we have to. Prabhupada never thought that the whole population is going to follow all the regular principles. It's for initiated devotees. So I can just explain how I see it. I see like different circles. You know, like in Tirupati, the Brahmins live around the temple. I just see different circles, and that's how it's always been. But Prabhupada said, ultimately the point of the Krishna conscious movement is to bring everyone to the Brahminical platform, even the Shudras. But there are so many people that are following so many other spiritual paths and other gurus. And we might say, well, that's because they don't demand anything. Well, yes, but it's also because those people can't get them to do anything more also. So we can get people to do more, but in the beginning, if you don't demand much, you get a bigger crowd. right? And Prabhupada, what did Prabhupada say? I don't say you have to wear robes, I don't say you have to just, you shave your head, just chant Hare Krishna. So the way I see it is there's this huge population of people that potentially could be interested in Krishna consciousness in a particular context. Because... I I study a lot of what's going on out there and I participated with other organizations and I see the people and I know there's lots of people that could be interested. But as you say, the context which we have for them doesn't work. I have another experience which is very interesting. That I have done programs where people did not know I was a devotee even though I wore a dhoti. We were in a totally neutral environment and I was the only one in the dhotis, which made it, it wasn't cultish. I'm the like priest, right? No one else is wearing a dhoti. And because they didn't know I was a devotee, I could preach more directly than in a temple. Because in a temple, they're like trying to convert me to a religion. In a neutral environment, there was no fear of conversion. Isn't that interesting? Having said that, I've attended... Um, very, very big, well-attended workshops with thousands of people. And they were being taught, you're not the body. They were being taught about compassion and all these things. And I'm watching this. It's basically like Satwaguna and a little trance. And I'm watching this and all the people are eating it up. And I'm thinking, why they're here and not at our temples? And that question, we have to answer that question. So... My philosophy is circles, you know. You bring people from a wider circle to a thinner circle, to a more central circle. And if they don't all come to the central circle, that's fine. They're still better off than they were before we met them, right? And, and our philosophy is not to push people to be initiated. But if they're coming in our circle, then they're hearing from Prabhupada. And so they have a group. And they're gradually, maybe they chant two rounds and follow three principles or two principles. Better than nothing, right? And, it, 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 and I'll tell you, uh, before you speak, I want to say one thing. This is very interesting. I went to Italy a few years ago to speak to Machiavatar. And Machiavatar is um, very successful in the work he's doing. And is he for, initiating now? Yeah. And so for many years, he was, you know, Marco somebody. Polo. 
Yeah, yeah. He was he wasn't using his initiated name, and he's teaching Indian philosophy and so forth. Oh, yoga. His furniture is on sale here in Dallas. Oh, really? So, um, and he would say, some people would come. Yeah, it was like no external idea in his center. There's no, there's no deities in his center. It's just conference rooms and like that. And he's speaking Indian philosophy. Some people would come at the end of the the program say, I want to be a monk. And they've got a temple three miles away where that person can be a monk, but they never pushed it. So my experience is you have all kinds of people. And so if you if you give general, even if you give, like, quote-unquote, what someone might think is watered down, someone will say, I want to be a monk. Do you have a temple? You know, it's just inevitable. And, that you know, so you, you draw a big circle, you preach in a way everyone can fit in, and then people will find their place. In the circle. Uh, is it, do you mind if I ask one more? You know, did you or have you ever felt personally that being trained as a humble devotee, that um, you were being converted into a Hindu? Uh, when I joined, no. Because you know, that's it. Seems like I never seen a Hindu. I didn't know what a Hindu was. <laughs> there was like. At my university, I think there were like three Indian students. At least I only saw, well, I can't even say there's three. I only saw one. And and I saw, yeah, I, yeah, no, not at all. You didn't and, feel this was a religious no, conversion? No, and, and, and um, I think if we had felt that, a lot of us wouldn't have joined because we we were anti-religion, so why would we join a religion? Prabhupada never made you feel that you were being converted into a Hindu, from a Christian to a Hindu. You never felt that ever. That never living, being a temple devotee monk meant you were now a Hindu. No. So what's the difference? Now? Yeah. What's the difference? Why do people? You're saying you know they'll go to some other program, but they're coming here. They feel like they're being converted into Hindus. Oh, why is it different now? Yes. You're saying you never felt that. And well, Prabhupada was certainly an Indian monk. I don't, I don't think we could have felt we were being converted into Hindus because they were all Americans in the temple. So you just naturally wouldn't think that. If, if, like in this temp, if you were joining this temple and it was all Americans, even if we have an Indian congregation, I don't think you would, have, you would feel comfortable. You'd say, well, this is, you know, this is my place. This is where I want to be. So that question didn't even come up. It wasn't even in our mind. There were no Indians involved in ISKCON in those days. That, you know, when Prabhupada came, I think that was like, 65 was the first year that Indians could get visas to, or get permanent residency in America. So when I was in San Diego, in even maybe in the early 80s or late 70s, there were three Indian families in the whole city. We just... And we didn't really know anything about Indian until we went to India and, you know, Mayapur Vrindavan. You know, so we're practicing Krishna consciousness in a totally American context. And um, it was, you know, we were doing, basically doing kirtan all day. And it had no, it had, there was no connotation of religion as we knew it. Was the kirtan more musical entertainment for you, like going to listen to, you know, some great no. rock star or musician or somebody? No, no, not what, at all. What, what was the difference? Ecstasy. 
Really? Kirtan's were simple. One melody, basically. And hardly anyone could play Murdunga. I mean, they played it, but not the way you're supposed to. Enthusiasm, the enthusiasm of the devotees. The, um, I think, you know, the big difference is Prabhupada was there, and that, that Prabhupada just illuminated the whole movement. So it's kind of like the Trump followers, you know. They say that, well, even if he does something illegal or immoral, we still love him. And it was like Prabhupada, we loved him so much, it was like, it was just to be with him and serve with him. It was like, you didn't notice anything else. It was just... That love was so... Uplifting. You didn't think, is this a religion? Like, was irrelevant. Is this a religion, not a religion? Are there Indians or not? It was all irrelevant. It was just, it was, we were ecstatic. Like, that saying, actually, Prabhupada made that. I have one of those, you know, a few calendars with quotes. Yeah. And there's a quote of Prabhupada. Someone's asked, saying something like, um, Prabhupada, Prabhupada, the quote is, um, whether, you know, you're good or bad, it doesn't matter, I love you anyway. Mm. You know, it was something into that kind, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing, but it was basically that. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Mm. If Krishna's God or not, we still love him. But this was Prabhupada talking to the devotees saying, whether you're good or bad, I still love you. Now, you were, you were saying that kind of like the Trump followers are saying, whether, well, whether he's good or bad, we still love him. But Prophet seemed to have that, um, rapport, that, that, that relationship with devotees. Yeah. Yes. For sure. I mean, you're wandering in the material world, you're a hippie, you're like completely detached, looking for something, and you find this. You know, and you call your friends, and you, because everybody in that generation was looking for the answer. You know, you're, you're getting high all the time, you're philosophizing, you're reading books, everybody's looking. So you become a devotee, and it's like, you call your friends and go, I found it, finally. And they're like, yeah, right. And none of them become devotees. But, and, and you're like, this is it. You know, so, and then and you're in a whole ashram of people who are exactly like you, who are saying the same thing. This is it. We found it. And it's like one big party every day. You know, we found it. And we have Prabhupada. And and all our friends are like, <laughs> this is my experience. I, I remember this directly, you know. So, you know, I was a student and, you know, I really didn't go to school that much. And I just just played guitar and, you know, whatever, you know. Sat around talking about philosophy and wasting time. And so I became a devotee and then all my friends just kept doing the same thing I was doing before I was a devotee. And it was like a year later, two years, three. I was like, I can't believe you're still doing this. And they're still doing it today, you know. So that just reinforced our conviction. It's like, how can you still do this? Because we had left that and we were, we were so happy. So, you know, it's, it's... I don't think it's fair to compare ISKCON today to then in any way, because Prabhupada was here, and that, that was like the one thing that made all the difference. If you look at videos, like we watched, someone shared a video, I don't know if you saw it, it was uh, about a month ago or three weeks ago. No, maybe about two weeks ago, someone shared a video of the devotees on the David Seskine show. It was a big talk show 
This was like 1969 or something, or 68 or 69. And I was with the devotees in Monterey, Mexico, and we were watching this, and everyone was like, like they couldn't believe the enthusiasm of the devotees. It was like they're on the show, and, and they said, okay, let's have a kirtan, and the devotees got up and like, Jai Prabhupada, Hare Krishna, and everybody's like this, you know, like all the devotees swinging back and forth. They're so happy, and you know, and you're, it's like it's nothing like anything you've seen. Even the best kirtan mela is different. Maybe not less, but just different. It was, and I'm looking at that and I'm saying, and I'm saying, you can't create this again. It's impossible. It was. And then you listen to the devotees speaking, and they're all speaking exactly what Prabhupada said. They're all brand new devotees, and they don't care what anybody thinks. They're they're saying things we would never, ever today say on television. They all, if we said it today, people would think we are completely crazy. And they were just like, you know. Last night, uh, Giriraj Maharaj was speaking about when he joined. Were you at that program? No. I was watching it live online. And he was talking about um, Mother Janaki. That was who? Satrut Marja's wife? No, the preached to him, Janava. 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 And she was who? She's the wife of Nanda Kishore. Nanda Kishore. And she was sitting next to him in the car. Yeah. He drove him back from this yeah. program in the station wagon. And she was giving him answers. Yeah. That were just like he had, you know, been reading and going and hearing others. And he said, you know, he could understand that this is not coming from a 22-year-old girl. This is like such deep realization. Yeah. So, and it convinced him. That's what convinced him to be a devotee. So if you look at BTGs from 1969-70, total long, long philosophical articles written by devotees, that if you read now, you would think, how did anybody become a devotee reading this magazine? This is like just philosophy. It's kind of boring. That's where people were at. And the devotees did not care an iota what anybody thought because they were hippies and they had that same mentality. So they would just go on these national television shows, 10 million people watching, and just say, I dropped out of the world. Everything's bad. Everyone's crazy. This is blissful. Everybody should do this. And they say, and David Seskind says, are you happy? He goes, yes, I'm so happy every moment. It's ecstasy serving Krishna and serving Prabhupada. This is what I want, you know, like, and we're watching this and going, this was Prabhupada's magic. They were just speaking exactly what Prabhupada said, super serious and super blissful at the same time. And I'm looking at this going, I completely forgot what ISKCON was like. This was, I lived in that. And I, t- I said, I forgot. And we were like this. And, um, you know, Prabhupada touched them in that way. It's just, it's I'm not. Just hearing it makes you feel so. You have to see this happy, video. You know? It's the David Suskind. Maybe Google David Suskind, S U S K I N, show. Hare Krishna. If you find this, it will like. You're not going to get over it for days. It's just going to be penetrating your brain for days when you see that. Okay. Wait, so, one more thing. I just okay, wanted to okay. bring up. One more thing I wanted to bring up. You know this point that you made about, yeah, yeah. You know, like the devotees like said, hey, I found it. And you were like, yeah, yeah. Or, you, you know, you were saying that to your friends and they were saying, yeah, yeah. You know, but Prabhupada had that kind of a response to his friend inviting him to meet Bhakti yeah. Sarantha Saraswati, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, right. 
right? There's he was like, yeah, 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 another sadhu, you know. There's but then when he actually met him, yeah. so that was your experience, wasn't it? Totally. Yeah, it was like, yeah, it was like, this is what we've been looking for. Through all the experimentations with drugs and, you know, I was initiated by Maharishi and all that and who the other devotees are doing yoga and reading books. It's like, you know, like Umapati Swami said, he said, he said, as soon as Prabhupada said, God is a person, he said, he's my, he thought, he's my guru. Like, no one ever told me this. Just simple, simple things, but we're reading all these books and it's just a big confusion and Prabhupada is like, blah, blah, blah. You know, one time, I forget the question was, some question about God, you know, what's God? And Prabhupada said, God is great, you are not great, therefore you are not God. You know, just like, you know, Prabhupada would say those things and it's like, nobody said that. All the other gurus were like, you, you and I and the oneness and the energy and the feeling and it's all love and peace and unconditional surrender. And, you know, and you're like, wow, that's beautiful. But you have no idea what they're saying. It's just a, you know, warm and fuzzy feeling, but nothing intellectual. So Prabhupada, you know, he actually explains things. You know, like, that was the first time anyone ever made sense speaking Indian philosophy. And that's, you know, that's why so many devotees just, they just got it right away because nobody else was making sense. Oh, totally. Giri Rajmaraj was bringing that up in this program last night. He was saying to Prabhupada that, yes, you know, he admitted openly to all the devotees that I, I'm God, I want to be yeah. God. And then Prabhupada said, oh, it, Krishna is God. Oh, why would he help the competition? <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah, Prabhupada had the perfect answer for everything, and so yeah, it was like I don't know how to explain. I, I, but even today, I was watching some like famous Indian scholar, like a collegiate professor, and everything. And they were asking about philosophy, spiritual philosophy from the Vedanta, and the things he were saying just like I, it meant nothing. It like yeah. it just was just like this jugglery of, I mean, of rhetoric. I'm not a scholar, but my observation is they think they're saying something, but they're not. They believe themselves that they've actually said something because they're talking. You know, they're explaining it. You know. But when you dissect it, they haven't said anything. But they think they have. It's kind of like the oneness and the energy, and the, they think they're they have some realization. And it's very sad that people hear this and people think there's some substance there. And it's very sad that when people look at us, they think, "Oh, you're just some cult, and you don't know anything." And so we have to, you know, balance that. We have to. I think the other thing, which I didn't mention, where we need to consider is that we have to help people on all levels. And if you give them philosophy, it, they may not understand how to take that philosophy and put it into a practice that's going to improve them today with their depression or their anger or their bad relationships, their bad marriage. So... That's where a lot of spiritual movements are gaining ground now. They're they're bringing it down, a philosophy to that level where they can solve problems because that's what people need. And people have more problems now, more psychological and practical problems than they had before. 
And so we lose people because they go to other organizations. And, you know, the Christians have realized, you know how the Christians, they're always solving problems at this marriage seminar or how to raise kids or how to overcome anger or whatever. Because they realize that. They're preaching this high philosophy and their whole congregation is getting divorced. So it's like, okay, we have to have something practical, right? It's just the sign of the age. And if they don't do it, they'll go to some secular group and they'll learn secular ideas about marriage. So they do it. So that's something to consider. You know, why people go to other organizations or other groups when we say, but our philosophy is so much more advanced. That may be, but people aren't getting it. They can't get it that quickly and, and know how to apply it. Even devotees don't always know how to practically apply something. Isn't it? Like I had to develop a whole forgiveness course just to explain how to apply forgiveness even when you shouldn't have any resentment in the first place if you understood the philosophy. So it's like a double whammy. I've got to dissect the philosophy how to forgive, but in the first place, if you understood karma, why would you have any resentment? You know, so that's the reality, right? Like you're, you're, um, you feel things emotionally before you think them. So we're, we're resentful before we go in our head and go, wait a minute, that's not part of our philosophy. But now it's stuck and I have to deal with it. Okay, well, how do I deal with it? And my, you break it down. You know, compassion, empathy, all these things we talk about, right? But how do you apply it in a relationship? We apply it on book distribution. That's easy. Just be compassionate. Anyone give them a book. That's easy. Any of us can do that. How to be compassionate to someone who doesn't like you? You know, that's, a, that's you know, a mother-in-law or somebody. That's like, okay, we've got to break this down. You know, where's that in our philosophy? No, it's there, but we don't always see it. So that's, I think, where we're losing a little bit. Okay. Thank you. We'll end Thank you more so tomorrow. Much. Hare Krishna. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Go Premanandi. Mahatma Prabhu Ki Jai. Go.